It's Friday, July 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And nearly half the tap water in the U.S. is contaminated with forever chemicals, says a government study. CNN's Sanjay Gupta, with the help of some lightly foreboding music, explains. They're called forever chemicals because they don't break down completely, meaning the same properties that make these chemicals so durable also make them extremely hard to get rid of, meaning they accumulate in the environment, in animals, and yes, they accumulate in us, humans. Thousands of communities across the United States have drinking water that is contaminated with PFAS. And as a result, more than 200 million Americans could have toxic PFAS in their drinking water, according to the Environmental Working Group. The animals in the part of the narration was illustrated by two dead cattle on a muddy riverbank. Well, this is something to certainly freak out about, no? They are chemicals and they last forever, as opposed to lead, which only has a half-life of 28 days. These are forever and they must be bad for you because they are chemicals, and the word contaminated was used. And we think they are bad for you, but we don't know. We really don't know. We need to know more. But we know they're everywhere, and we know the water is contaminated. They're in the water of 200 million Americans, which is to say, most Americans. Here's a bit of that CNN article that accompanied the Sanjay Gupta narration that narrows it down. Quote, the highest concentration of PFAS, those are the chemicals, in drinking water were found in the Great Plains, the Great Lakes, the Eastern Seaboard, and Central and Southern California. So, America. They were found in America. And if they're forever, I guess there is nothing we could do about it now. I do not dismiss the potential harms of the forever chemicals. Good branding, by the way. But beyond detecting these chemicals, there's so little information about what we know of the harms of the chemicals. Could be harmful, probably harmful. How harmful? There are some studies that say in gigantic doses in fish, quite harmful. In tiny little doses in humans, I'm worried about the harm, but they haven't demonstrated the harm. And of course, they could be everywhere, and because they're forever, it could be too late. You know, usually when there's a headline that has the word contaminated in it, next to maybe drinking water, there's a pretty clear call to action, at least a clearer connection to the risks but the risks of these contaminants are unknown. And it's very hard for the media not to blare the headline, contaminated forever chemicals. And so everyone blared the headline. It is true. I mean, forever chemicals. They're chemicals. Chemicals of some unknown effect are quite ubiquitous. The EPA is studying them more. Good. Some municipalities are suing the manufacturers of these chemicals. Also good. But beyond that, I don't know, contaminated, I guess forever contaminated are we because of the water that we drink. We don't know about the effect of the chemicals. I definitely do know the effect of these headlines and this reporting. It's more of the free-floating anxiety that certainly has a bad effect on us, yet not so much when found in great levels in fish. Sorry, we can't give you any more solid information on the forever chemicals. Doesn't seem great to any of us, but only time will tell. Now, here's another picture of a dead cow. Don't freak out too much. Deal? Not a deal? Well, we're not altering our terms. On the show today, I spiel about the fun, the glee-bringing innovations. They may be not forever innovations. They're certainly not microscopic, but they are nice. But first, Lola Blanc is a songwriter, a musician, an actress, host of the cult-centric Trust Me podcast, and the writer-director of the new short film, Pruning. It's the story of a right-wing pundit who inspires some degree of mayhem. Lola gives us a unique insight 
into cults, including her time and her mom's time in one. Lilla Blank up next. Lola Blanc is a filmmaker, an actress, a writer, a musician. Her newest work is a short film in the horror genre, more like creepiness than jump scares. And it is broadly about white supremacy, mass shootings, maybe right-wing media. She plays a Tommy Lauren-type pundit, maybe in generations past. She'd be an Ann Coulter or a Laura Ingram. She gives cover or possibly inspiration to one of these mass shooters. And she does some sort of horrific reckoning with it. Don't want to give it all away, but I can imagine that it probably sprang from Lola herself wondering, how can these people live with themselves? Lola, welcome to The Gist. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Was that it? Like all these mass shootings happen and you do what you can, what we all do to try to process them. But you have this question, you know, all these people who espouse this rhetoric, how do they not see themselves as culpable at all? Right. You know, I I also have a podcast called Trust Me, and it's about cults and extreme belief. And on the podcast and also just in my own life, I've experienced what it feels like to be someone who, you know, is indoctrinated and like believes something that's crazy. So I like that is something I'm familiar with. How do you believe a crazy thing? Well, people who are really good at manipulating or, you know, feeding you nonsense are get into your head. But I became really curious about the people who are the ones spreading those ideas. Do do they care? Do they know that what they're saying is false or inflammatory or racist or whatever it may be? Um, and that was the question I wanted to explore. And my actress is um, Madeline Brewer, who is um, on Handmaid's Tale, and she's amazing. There is a distinction, though, between cults and the sort of flippant, flippant, irresponsible rhetoric that sometimes gets weaponized in that the cult has a directive. They want the cult member to give them, there's usually a sexual component, almost always a money component, but they engage in the behavior to that end. Whereas the right-wing provocateur, maybe we could talk about left-wing provocateurs too, but they probably would rather there not be actual violence. It's kind of a pain in the neck for them. They just want the audience and the reaction. They don't want to have to deal with the blowback. So isn't that an important distinction? Right. But I think, you know, you brought up money as like, yes, many cults have a financial incentive. I would argue that that is the same for many of these sort of extreme political commentators. Like they might not actually believe what they're saying. They might not actually want to incite violence deep down. But ultimately, they are choosing money. They are um, using these ideas as a vehicle through which to, you know, profit instead of pausing to consider whether it's dangerous. When you and your mother, but you could tell me the whole story, were in the cult or uh, experiencing the persuasive aspects of the cult. How similar did it seem to you to someone who is an interested but passive viewer of a show on Newsmax or even beyond that, an Alex Jones type show? Was it, were there similarities and were there dissimilarities? Mm, That is such a good question. I would say that there are similarities in that my particular, you know, I'm going to put it in quotations, prophet, um, he was preying on our pre-existing beliefs, right? He knew that we were Mormon. He knew that my mom had this belief system already, and he knew what the holes were in that to sort of prey on and manipulate. I think that, 
we do see a parallel in some of these talking heads because they know what the hot button issues are. They know that if they start talking about trans people, that's going to get people fired up because that's the thing right now. They are utilizing um, ideas that they know exist already and sort of expanding upon them for their own means. So what was your prophet's version of the hot button issue, trans people? Or what was his hot button way in? So in Mormonism, you have the Book of Mormon, which is this, these are the scriptures that Joseph Smith brought out that were hidden from the world in the 1800s, right? And within those scriptures, there's a, a, a section called the sealed portion that was hidden away from the world. It, it was lost. So it was prophesied that in the last days, some new prophet would bring them about and like bring them back to the earth. Mormonism really like sets up this culture of any guy can kind of just show up and be like, I'm the guy now, which is why you have the FLDS, which is why you have so many offshoot uh, groups like that. But so this man um, who I who I don't name because I don't like to give him attention. And also, I you mean, he's still out there operating and manipulating. He is still out there operating and manipulating, yes, and and we'll we'll deal we'll talk about that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, he was like, "I'm the one. I have the sealed portion." He wrote an entire text um, to basically like, you know, he simulated the language of the Book of Mormon, and he then utilized other people and made up other people to kind of make it seem like he had all of this support and all of these people who believed in him and really just preyed on my mom's vulnerabilities. The other thing I will say that is different from, you know, someone we see on television is that my mom had had a dream about a, a man who she believed that she was going to meet. Mormonism is just filled with this idea of like signs, um, you know, prophecies, you you get a feeling about something. And she had a dream about a guy and she met this guy and he looked just like the guy in her dream. So that kind of set everything up. That's a unfortunate coincidence for her i know or maybe know. you know maybe god is working in mysterious but exact really in exact ways no not this guy this guy <laughs> the prophet's twin brother is really this is nice. a warning dream yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it does seem to me that you love your mom and we don't wish to cast aspersion she was at least vulnerable yes yes right? she was she was vulnerable it wasn't just a dream she wasn't operating in the world at maximum functionality and efficiency and boom one day she joins a cult and her brain gets rewired and changed, right? Well, I, I think the characterization of boom is tricky because it actually like wasn't boom. It took several months of like sort of working on her. And this is what these people do. And we see this over and over again. So many people who come on my podcast will be like, I ha I was I had hesitation at first. I felt like something was off, but they like kept bringing me back and the repetition. And then they seem to know these things about me. You know, they work on you over time. It's not something that happens instantly. And that is the same for people who become radicalized politically. It's not something that happens overnight there's a habituation and they can't the the radicalizers in who are broadcasting or involved in mass media can't tailor it to the individual but there are so many commonalities that you could speak to your powerlessness or look how times have changed when you were young or the way it should right. be or back when america was great per se um so yeah there is a lot of working on the vulnerabilities of people but then people with vulnerabilities and the uh right wingers or sometimes you know sometimes in ways the left wingers will skip away from responsibility because they will say 
well, the people who misinterpreted my words did just that, and they obviously had either mental illness or pre-existing vulnerabilities, and I can't be, this is exactly a line from pruning, I can't be responsible for all of their interpretations. So is that a difference, or do you see more similarities there? Because if they really wanted to, Alex Jones could know that he has many listeners and viewers with vulnerabilities, and he has to know that some percentage of his audience is going to take his message in a violent way. Right. I mean, listen, I can't speak to the motivations of any particular uh, commentator or cult leader. I think the question often that we discuss on the podcast and in my life is like, do do they know? How much do they know? People are capable of great cognitive dissonance, but also there are megalomaniacs and psychopaths and narcissists out there who um, really do just want people to just really want to toy with people and see how much they can control them. And it's not even necessarily about what the end result is, but how much they can get people to do. Um, I, I would guess that someone who is a political commentator on TV probably doesn't have the actual motivation to inspire the violence, but they are really good at justifying their words and, um, you know, sort of rationalizing away their behavior. But I don't know that for sure. You know, I don't know these people's minds. So I, Certainly think that, uh, first of all, Alex Jones is in a separate category and he urged his followers on and continued to engage in horrific lies. Uh, There are gradations of the sort of people who are responsible. You could say, you know, Tucker Carlson just plays fast and loose with the truth. And of course, there's going to be some inevitable followers of him who take it too far. What about the fact that the congressional softball game, baseball game was uh, attacked by a follower of Bernie Sanders? What of the fact that uh, a deranged individual flew from California to Washington, D.C. to with handcuffs, with a plan, an explicit plan to do violence upon a Supreme Court justice. These are left-wingers who take signals that Bernie Sanders never gave and interpret them in incorrect ways. They're steeped in the culture of America, which is a culture of grievance and violence. And sometimes that results in the sort of attack that you or I would both say no one was urging them to do that. How do you square that with what you see and what your film is talking about with the right-wing version of extremism? Right, yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting question to me because like, I, I think it would be... It would be false to say that extremism does not exist on the left. Of course it does. Um, That said, I I think what you need to look for, what I look for, is a clear and persistent pattern. Um, And we know that all of the right wing, at least according to a study, all of the extremist violence that occurred that was ideologically motivated from last year, for example, was committed by right people with right wing ideology. And most of that, most of those were committed by people who were white supremacists. There is a white supremacist idea of this accelerationism, which is to commit as much violence as possible. Uh, I forget like how they describe it, but basically like to commit as much violence as possible in order to then like bring about white supremacy for everyone or whatever. I think like it is really important to constantly be mindful of the way that we talk and to use nuance and to make sure that we are not getting stuck in our own ideological bubble. But I also think at this point, it is a false equivalency considering what has been occurring thus far. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting it 
suggesting it's an equivalency is is just interesting to tease out those test cases and see if you're, if one's thesis still holds, right? right? It would be a very easy thesis to say, here is the problem. It is from only that side of things. To me, my conclusion isn't so much that there's a right-wing call to violence and some people are hearing the call and heeding the call, and that there's a, a left-wing call to violence and someone or he, some people are hearing and heeding. I don't actually think that there's that much of that I'm aware of the broadcasting of the left-wing call to violence. What I think is some percentage of the violence is mimetic, they see other people doing it, is based on mental illness, is going to grasp upon whatever is in the ether. And at a time when, you know, we were worried about, I don't know, pod people or aliens, there were sorts of sometimes unhinged violent attacks where schizophrenics or very unwell people, you know, thought that their enemy was fake. Now, many schizophrenics who do, and most don't, (laughs) the vast majority don't, but there are attacks on Asians because that's more of the threat that's in the air. So there's some of that going on is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it it would be interesting to do sort of a study on like what particular mental illness these shooters have. It does seem like many of them do not have a diagnosis like schizophrenia and really have just straight up become radicalized and and like feel lonely and isolated. And Right, right. The ones that planted out thus far uh, actually don't. I mean, very rarely the Aurora shooter might have had some, although I inter- interviewed his uh, psychiatrist, he might have had some schizophrenia or bipolar issues. But generally, in order to plan out one of these, you know, horrific but detailed shootings, you can't be that unwell. So was there a specific or maybe two or three specific source women that you were riffing on in your main character, Sammy? <laughs> I feel like I'll get in trouble if I say that, if I answer that question. But there were, I mean, listen, there there is like basically a model of this type of figure. They all kind of look the same and they all kind of talk the same. Um, so it wasn't that hard to use like a handful of different inspirations. Um, but listen, like, yeah, there, there are women who have been appeared on Fox News, Newsmax or whatever, who uh, who I definitely was drawing from. Did you uh, give any suggestions to your actress saying study this tape? Uh, we may have discussed okay. <laughs> a couple of people. <laughs> yeah. That's good. But no, she no, also no. wanted... Look, if your whole yeah. premise is be careful what you say because you don't want to uh, breathe animosity into the air, I let you defer on naming exact names. No problem. How do you think the blondness factors in? Because they're almost always blonde. They're always blonde. I feel like there's this, I mean, listen, like there's this conservative ideal of a woman who's like hyper feminine in appearance anyway and very white and like it sort of seems to exemplify this like middle of America or southern America idea of what a woman is. I, that That's the only explanation I can think of. I'm... It is fascinating that it is almost like a uniform that they take on, with a few exceptions, obviously. Right. Not always Candace Owens. It's quite thrilling when there's someone who breaks the mold. But in order to have theme and variations, (laughs) you have to have the theme. From listening to your occult podcast, sorry I didn't mention it, um, you do emphasize that one thing that a lot of cult podcasts don't is that this really could happen to anyone. And there's, in so many cult podcasts or documentaries, there's the... um, marveling over just how bananas these theories are, as if the listener or viewer is supposed to spend a moment saying to themselves, how could someone possibly believe that? 
but you know how they can, you know how someone could believe that. And so do you, I, I sense, but do you spend a lot of time or do you take extra care not to engage in that sort of incautious talking about someone who gets taken in like a cult as if they're a freak? Yeah, that's something that's incredibly important to me. That was like one of the main reasons I started the podcast in the first place. I feel because I would be going on like YouTube videos about Jonestown or whatever or whatever it may be. And the comments would just be like, these idiots, these fucking how could they think that? And it's like the people who get pulled into these things are there's like there is no one type of person they are frequently educated they are um men and women they are all ages it is more common that it will happen when they're young because young people tend to be in a vulnerable time in their life when they're trying to figure out who they are but it really really does happen to everyone um i you know if we look at some of the beliefs within christianity or mainstream religions some of those would sound just as crazy to us if we were to take them out of the context that we know them in and just say oh i believe this man parted the ocean or whatever i like i just don't think um i think we are all capable of believing crazy things and it really depends on where we are in our life when we heard it who told it to us how many people were around them who seemed reliable and intelligent and was there some kind of cognitive opening within us at that time that made us more vulnerable. Lola Blanc is a multi-hyphenate. She is out with a new film, which she wrote and directed called Pruning. Her podcast is called Trust Me, a podcast about cults that she co-hosts with Megan Elizabeth. And uh, if you're like, wait, isn't she the co-writer of that Britney Spears song from the Smurfs movie? (laughs) In fact, she is the Smurfs 2 song. (laughs) Do you think Smurfs 2 was warranted? Right. I mean, you're a filmmaker. Were there a lot of unanswered questions from Smurfs 1? <laughs> Listen, I know. didn't see either of them, so I don't know. <laughs> like, you just didn't have time? You don't want to see your song over the end credits? Well, you know, it was supposed to be my song originally. So I think on some level, yes, I was right. like, I will let that be over there. Have you ever met in real life, by the way? No, I would love to. She, she I think she owes, she owes you a meeting, I think. <laughs> She wrote. She covered your song. Have you ever met any Smurfs in real life? Who's your favorite Smurf? Uh, Smurfette, obviously. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Feminism. But also, but also the weird blonde who has an unbelievable sway over members of the community. Little culty. Oh, hey. True, true. <laughs> and who's Papa Smurf if not the prophet? Oh Wait a minute. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I the enforcement that arm, Brawny. Okay, we got to stop here. <laughs> Lola Blanc. Her new movie is called Pruning. It will be the best way to figure out where to get it is to go to her Instagram. Lola, great to talk to you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks you so much for having me. And now the spiel. You know, an underlying theme with this show and a lot of what I think about is progress versus stagnation. Alternatively, modernity, net boon or net bane. There's a lot of doomerism that occurs when we look at things like climate change, which is indeed quite bad. 
when we look at income inequality, which is wide, though it has been shrinking a little bit in the last couple of years. But we have a human, especially a 21st century human tendency to discount the advances of the world and credit the demerits of the world. So I try to step outside that whirling neurotic monkey brain that we all probably need. I mean, we selected for it evolutionarily to stay away from dangers and predators. So thank you, threat matrix mind. But also, this is why I have to consciously attempt to step aside and outside of that mind to assess our situation. In doing so, I attempt to put my finger on some of the salutary aspects of civilization that might not get captured in the macroeconomic data or in the online documentation of our scribes and our bards of the day, these bards more and more consisting of an aggrieved class of coastal, debt-laden liberal arts majors for whom happiness is somewhere between a chore and an illusion. I ask, what gives people enjoyment? Real people, real enjoyment. Not a sugar high or a glimpse of fleeting joy or something to post on the socials, not something that comes at the cost of our sanity, our placidity, or the environment. On the show, I have frequently talked about the big things, like encountering others in real life. Huge fan of that. I haven't talked enough about family, but family and friendship is, of course, really important. But I'm trying to put my finger on the things that give Americans, or human beings in general, but since I am an American, I think about America, the things that give us pleasure, glee, happiness, meaning that are also kind of recent human inventions. I'm less after, in this little thought experiment, less into the things that are hardwired into our circuitry as a species and more into saying, you know, that's awesome. I spent a few hours doing that thing that some other person whose name I might not even know invented and I loved it and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. So in other words, not water skiing or paragliding. We are, of course, gifted with or enticed to experience screen-based entertainments, the likes of which the human species has never known. But I do think most great TV shows, and there are plenty of great TV shows, more lately than were 40 years ago, let's say, but most of them are part of a streaming network, and the streaming networks are jacking up their prices, and the streaming networks are offering more mediocre content, and it's hard to discern what's what, and they are crowding out different kinds of content that was quite good. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe is fun and popular and the good content really is impressive, but it doesn't fall within the category of innovation that I'm talking about. Innovation that has on the whole come with many more benefits than costs to most people. Also, side note on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it is a lie. Marvel stories are the ongoing stories of regular people who find themselves in extraordinary situations and band together to achieve justice. But what it is, in fact, is millionaires leveraging IP and taking advantage of special effects houses to bring us those stories. This isn't about Marvel. This isn't about innovations that don't quite get there. In those categories, you know, big, impressive things that I could scarcely have dreamed of when I was a boy, things like the metaverse or online communities or really all video games beyond Pac-Man, but it's the same deal with them. Some people love them. I don't criticize the people that love them, but take them out of the equation, retroactively strangle them all in the crib so they never took hold. Are we collectively happier or less happy? Hard to say. So the other day, I was walking through a public park. By the way, public parks are great and they're actually taken into account in the macroeconomics or at least the happiness calculations. More parks, more green space, more happiness. That is true. Leisure time, that is quantifiable and correlative. But I was walking through this park 
And it's a park I'd been to before, but I'd never seen it in quite the same way because it had transformed. What I was looking at struck me as revolutionary. And beyond that revolution was the fact that the revolution I was seeing was going unnoticed as a revolution, a revolution in happiness, the overall equation of happiness. I thought it was notable. This park is one of those city parks that has no grass. There's pavement. On the pavement is drawn a track, which no one follows, is drawn bases for a ball field that if anyone actually tried to utilize would conflict with the children milling about, ignoring its markings. Usually at noon on a summer day, this is when I was there, summer weekday, you would say, I don't know, five random kids, three on scooters and two chasing a ball. Instead, this park was filled with 24 purposeful, gleeful people, and they were all playing pickleball. Now, pickleball does have an economic impact. It's measurable. And people answer surveys saying, oh, yes, I love to play pickleball. But I think in the last two or three decades, pickleball might be one of the most important and impactful innovations in American society. There have been other health and recreation fads that have come and gone. It is odd how one specific cohort of people think, oh, I'll rollerblade everywhere. That's cool. And the next generation will use rollerblading imagery as a means to set a rom-com in the past and establish a character as a dork. But pickleball seems to be a lasting phenomenon. Here's another one that didn't quite catch on. Spin classes. That's a fad that makes some people happy, I guess. Definitely makes the headset microphone industry happy, but it is expensive. It is a cult. It's not as transformative or as available to as wide a demographic as pickleball. Pickleball has been kind of revolutionary. And I have another nominee as to the leisure activity that has probably contributed to more happiness than any other innovation of the last few decades. Born of American ingenuity and without the clear deleterious downsides to our psyche, and yet it mostly eludes the official metrics of happiness I speak of fantasy football. And by fantasy football, I of course mean rotisserie baseball and fantasy golf or any other kind of fantasy sport. Definitely fantasy basketball, I like that one. But in general, I'm talking about an activity that was invented by humans. Humans who said, oh, look at these statistics that these sportsmen are accruing. Let's use those statistics to play a game based on the game that we already watch and enjoy. It's really been transformative. I'm not saying fantasy football doesn't come with downsides, like talking about your fantasy football team thus making you an extremely boring person. That is a downside. What I'm saying is it does transform the lives of now tens of millions of people. It adds to the national happiness in a way that goes beyond any other leisure invention I could think of, except maybe pickleball. And by the way, full disclosure, I do offer a $500 tier of subscription at subscribe.mikepesca.com, where in addition to Pesca Plus segments and ad-free segments, I will offer my participation in your fantasy football league. By way of more full disclosure, I do have to admit that I sometimes sneak quasi-infomercials into my spiels under the guise of a laudable commitment to full disclosure, which brings me back to fantasy football and pickleball. There must be others that can vie for the title of happiness-generating leisure activities of the last 20 or 30 years. Send your suggestions to the gist at MikePesca.com or go to the Reddit page or at PescaGist on Twitter. This leads me to say that the choices for interpersonal communication do not qualify as happiness-inducing innovations. I did come up with a couple of near misses, nearer even than rollerblading. I thought of Labradoodles. Really all the crossbreed dogs, especially this fun breed, hypoallergenic breed. But really, 
I do have to admit, we'd be no discernibly worse off if we had to console ourselves with mere poodles and mere Labrador retrievers, and never the breeds shall meet. And if they do, there would be cries of, no, Bosco, bad Bosco, Bosco, I am surprised at you. Another big one, innovation that certainly helped me, podcasting. Podcasting is about 20 years old. Some Some say 20 years old today. But again, you know, Candace Owens and Dan Bongino and Charlie Kirk. And also, you know, let's put them a dais. Those guys, you know those guys. Anyway, all forms of mass media have plus sides and downsides, and they all generally displace fairly well-functioning and existing systems. I don't know. They've been the boon that fantasy football has. Also, podcasting, labradoodles, rollerblading. It is odd that so many innovations are portmanteaus. It goes to show they're not truly innovative. They're just a variation on a theme. And yeah, I'll admit pickleball is just a cross between tennis and ping pong, but different enough to be named to the top two of my list of happiness innovations. I was also mindful that I may be being sexist by pointing to pickleball and fantasy football. Pickleball, 60-40 male to female split. The female demographic is growing. Fantasy football, that's about 90% male. Is there an Etsy-based activity that has been transformative, that has been happiness-making, that has the power of either pickleball or fantasy football? Remember, this has to be a new innovation, not just crafting becoming more popular than it once was. If you're saying, I know where you're thinking about this, Mike, it's because you just interviewed Simon Johnson and Dara Nasamoglu. Correct. And those two MIT economists pointed out that even though technology is said to be incredibly transformative, it most often benefits a tiny section of society. And labor-saving and connective though it may be, technology usually only saves the labor of those who own the means of production. Has all these productivity apps and innovations. Have they expanded or shrunk your workday? I ask you. So if I'm going for collective joy, glee, happiness, satisfaction, peace of mind, overall flourishing, I'm looking for a true innovation, one without huge psychic downsides, and ideally one that gets overlooked or taken for granted. What's an activity that you do that makes life worth living, that wasn't available to you a generation ago? That's it. That's my ask. That's my assignment. Help me name the other great American leisure innovations. And if you do, if you get in touch with me, however you get in touch with me, I promise not to bother you with my sleeper picks for tight end in the PPR format. It's Mark Andrews, by the way. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. This week, the producer, the producer of The Gist. Because senior producer Joel Patterson has been away on a deserved vacation. I hope he's played some pickleball during that time. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Gpru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.